who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Wander with us into a world of magic. Do you lack magic? Where old stories take on a new life and the world is teeming with possibilities. Well, for the last time, we're not kissing, Fritz. Join Jenny and Madeline in this fantastical audio drama as they journey into the stories you grew up with. Okay, Gown. Let's do this. And reinvent fairy tales with a feminist twist. Ready for your next adventure? Then we'll see you soon in the forest of feminist fairy tales. Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Time to bring the power to a new generation. It's episode 384 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and I'm excited because it's a brand new He-Man series once again coming to Netflix. He-Man and the Masters of the Universe premiering on September the 16th, and I got a chance to talk to showrunner, executive producer, Rob David, and executive producer, co-executive producer, Jeff Matsuda, about the upcoming series. And boy, you want to talk about excitement? For Masters of the Universe and the characters, these two guys have it in spades. Let me tell you, wait till you hear my conversation with them as we just kind of geek out about He-Man for a little bit. Also going to be talking about, speaking of Netflix, my spoiler-free review of Season 6 of Lucifer. I know, I'm sad. You're sad. We're going to talk about it anyway. And it's probably just going to turn into me just reminiscing about the last six seasons anyway. So just keep, keep in mind that that is a very distinct possibility. Also, a bunch of great trailers. Yes, I'm going to talk about the Matrix trailer. I'm going to talk about Injustice. And maybe I will go on a little bit of a rant about Venom, Let There Be Carnage. You'll find out why a little bit later on. I I mean, I can't wait to start talking about He-Man, so let's do that. Let's talk to Rob David and Jeff Matsuda next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Kari Walgren, the voice of Haruko in FLCO. And you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Uh, It's a great time to be a He-Man fan because, yes, we have a second He-Man series coming to Netflix. That's He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, which is going to premiere September the 16th. And I just got a chance to sit down with showrunner and executive producer Rob David from Mattel as well. And also co-executive producer Jeff Matsuda to talk about this brand new CG style series. And I couldn't wait to dive into this new take on these classic characters as well. Just a heads up, maybe a couple of minor spoilers for the series coming up, especially for episode four 
in this interview. But here it is, my conversation with Rob David and Jeff Matsuda. So, Rob, Jeff, we know that when this series was first announced, we knew it would differ quite a bit from Masters of the Universe Revelation. I believe the series were actually announced at the exact same time that there would be two different series. There's, there's still quite a few members, though, of the creative team from Revelation on this series as well. How do you feel like that actually benefited you all going into He-Man and the Masters of the Universe? Quite a bit, because part of the, the, the spirit behind both these shows is it's when you have a story, a universe as rich um, and terrific as Masters of the Universe that really um, spans generations. And you realize that like you have the opportunity to tell the Masters of the Universe story for different audiences while being at their core true to, to, the, to the roots, but then expressed in ways for, for different audiences. So, you know, my role across the two series, you know, on, on Revelation, uh, I'm an executive producer and I co-developed storyline originally with Kevin Smith, but Kevin got to, to run it. And then on this one, this is an original take on it that I developed for Mattel and have the pleasure of uh, working on it day to day and deep and with my co-partner in, in crime, Jeff Matsuda, who makes it all such a, a joy and others on our team. So I think having the, the kind of macro vision of the what Masters of the Universe is, but then being able to, for Revelation to do it as a follow-up to the entire 1980s era, the classic era, you know, to, to bring that back, not in a way that just to replicate, you know, we always want to progress the story and, and see what happens next, but to do it in a way that appeals to us who grew up on it. And then with this show to reimagine an all new masters for this next generation of potential fans for them to get to meet these characters for the first time and to have them reflect uh, the world that kids are growing up in now. Throughout production, Rob, Rob, Rob would be like, hey, Jeff, you want to see this? It's from Revelations and, and the, the other show we're doing. And I would, I would try not to look at it because I, I know it's awesome, but I would, I, I would, we wanted to make sure the shows would be really different. So I'd be like, no, it's going to influence what I'm doing over or what we're doing over <laughs> here. So it's, yeah, it's turned out really nice though. Good call, Jeff. Good call. I actually wanted to lean into that a little bit, really, because the character designs might be some of the most unique designs that I've seen for any iteration of He-Man so far. Really, really cool stuff. So how exciting is it to come up with these new looks? And are there any in particular you're really excited for fans to really get to see beyond what we've seen in the trailer? Overall, I just, I love working with Rob so much. And he always helps to really just let let me know and everyone on production, like the essence of these characters. So I think it's really fun to just take these characters that we've all known for for, for so many years and put them through a different filter. And I think that's that's been like super fun of just taking their essence and then reworking it for today's new generation, you know, so, so our kids can enjoy it just like we enjoyed, you know, the original show going into it. And then, yes, there are many new characters. I don't know what I could mention, Rob, you could let me know if there's any. Let's, let's talk. Let's talk really. Jump in, Rob, if you can think of any. We're reimagining this, you know, we're trying, we, we're distilling what the characters are and what Masters of the Universe is to its core foundation uh, and then finding ways to make it relevant and fresh for kids growing up today. So, so that works on kind of multiple levels. You know, one is that progressively over the last few decades, we as a, as a culture, and especially kids, we're not really, you know, we don't really kind of want instant heroes, perfect heroes. We want heroes with challenges. We want heroes who progress and, and, and over and overcome and start at zero and then work their way up to a hundred or the other uh, analogy we use is like belts and karate. So it was really important for us to kind of immediately take He-Man, I mean, take Adam, take all these characters and then don't start them off like where they're perfect. Start them off 
before that. Show them have uh, having a coming of age story. And then the other thing which I think is relevant to kids is, you know, the the alter ego, you know, it used to be classically that, you know, Superman pretended to be Clark Kent, so to speak. And then we realized that it's much more compelling and relatable and even aspirational for it really to be Superman. I mean, Clark Kent, who gets to be trying to be Superman. And so really kind of doubling down on Adam and, and Tila and Duncan, who they are as characters, and then try to start them from fresh at a young age when we're getting to know them. I noticed that right away, too. That was a really, really good call on you guys. Part. I loved how different that was for sure. And whoever came up with Ram Ma'am, I'm just saying that was one of the most clever things. I was like, I love this idea. I I'll tell you, that. So, so, so I like, I, I made the character, you know, I, I reimagined the character to be a uh, girl and to be Adam's friend. We can get in the architect, but the, the name itself comes from Melanie Shannon, who's a, a creative supervisor on it. And it was when she said it, cause I was thinking like, what do I call her? You know, blah, 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 blah. and she's like, Ram Ma'am. I'm like, oh my God, that's, that's like, <laughs> So like, perfect. Props to her because that I loved that yeah. immediately. Loved it. <laughs> so yeah. you guys actually give Cringer a, a very interesting role in the series this time around, especially when it comes to Adam and, and actually Crass as well. But how important is Cringer is almost kind of like the guiding force of the, of this young group? Tremendously important. So it, every decision impacts something else. So like, I knew I wanted, I didn't want Adam to start off in the palace being, being a prince. I, he needed a journey to, to go on. And, you know, I was inspired by the, by the original mini comics where when we first uh, met He-Man, he was just, he was part of a jungle tribe. So I thought, you know, it'd be fun to kind of take that and, and kind of as an homage, but then put Adam in a jungle tribe scenario where he doesn't know who he is growing up but I really wanted him to have that special bond with, with Cringer and do it in a, in a fresh way. And there's an aspect to uh, Masters of the Universe classically where there are these kind of archetype mentor characters. Uh, traditionally, it was, it was uh, Duncan was, was a mentor character as an older adult uh, figure to He-Man. And as, in addition to being a genius with tech, and I, I, but I felt like we wanted Duncan to be on the same level as the others and be part of that kid journey. But that archetype of the mentor character, that surrogate father character, especially when Adam doesn't have that perfect relationship with his father, his own father just yet, was there. And it just felt like that would be such a great emotional bond between them and to kind of create this this family dynamic at a at a young age and then you know but while also the other thing that was important to to me and, and, and to Jeff was to to make Cringer for the first time a full-on master you know to give each of these characters um, a specificity and a pathway to um, demonstrating how they're the master of the universe and to make Cringer not just Adam's ride not just his his horse but and but also his mentor and father figure but also a full a full master and and the design that that for Battle Cat and Cringer that Jeff and HOC came up with just just nailed it. And what, one one thing I wanted to mention was like, even if you look at Cringer when he turns into Battle Cat, I think it's the story is so full and rich because like when, when if it's just so cool like it, when he first transforms, the music is just it it really feels like he's returning to his glory from when he was younger. So it's just the idea this older cat is, is returning to a former glory, which I thought was so powerful, man. When I first saw that sequence, I was like, oh my gosh, this is just, it's such a rich world that I think has been created. You know, I wanted to say that one of the things I love about working with Netflix, and this affects all of us, you know, we have a great exec at, at Netflix on this show, Megan Casey. And one of the great things about Netflix is that you don't have to get everything done in the first episode that you, each of these stories, because you're streaming and binging possibly, please binge all 10 at once. You get to tell them all as chapters. So, so me and Jeff and our, and our writers and, and Brian Kimiller, the story editor, 
we got to basically take our time and say, look, why don't we have the first transformation beyond He-Man be in four? So, he didn't, so that by the time he does, Adam does the unthinkable thing, which is part of the core concept of him sharing the power of Grayskull, you get to know, you know these kids and you feel like that impact where they get, that, where they've gone to transform for the first time. And then we can do that with their nemeses as well on the, on the dark side so that when we echo episode four and episode nine, it's kind of become our, Empire Strikes Back moment, and we've we've we feel like hopefully we've kind of earned it because we've seen the them each step of the way. The big theme for this show is expressed by Eldris is being a master is about fi figuring out who you are inside and out, and being able to have you know multiple chapters on one story gets us to really dive into that. Rob, I love how you said please binge all ten at once, like we're going to be able to stop once we get started because I couldn't so. <laughs> I love how you kind of give us a choice there, Rob. I don't think it's going to be, quite frankly. Um, so one of the things I really love that you guys did was I feel like you really added some very unique depth to Skeletor's character in this series. So can you come up with what was the process like in coming up with what you were going to do with that character? Because I thought it was a really neat spin that you guys did. Skeletor, the idea of him being Adam's uncle is something that was tease in a mini comic in 1987 uh, past when the episodes were ever done and then the 2000 x series uh the mike young production series kind of established that link but never really got to articulate it and dive into it and i've done some writing for dc comics on he-man where i i kind of explored that a little bit but this seemed like an opportunity to really kind of make the the drama personal between them and actually show a type of relationship you know, and show the contrast between Adam and, and Keldor, that Adam is, is somebody who is worthy of the power because he can let it go. And, and Skeletor is someone who can never let it go. And I remember when we were breaking um, an episode past the five, the, the first 10 towards the end, I can't, I don't know if I can say what episode, but we were, it's one of the biggest finale episodes. And <laughs> Jeff and I were talking about it and, and Jeff, you know, summed it up really well, which is um, Skeletor is on a journey to amass more and more power. And he-Man is really on a journey to amass more and more friends. And as it turns out, the fact that he has friends and family is the greatest power of them all, you know? So I think that's the two, the arc, and then making the drama between these two characters so personal just makes it richer. I agree with that, with, with what Rob said completely. I think, I think it's just such a great, it's a great show for adults. Like I really enjoy it. I think all of us He-Man fans will enjoy it. But I, I think it's also so great for kids. I think there's a lot of themes that are so great for kids to hear. Uh, nowadays uh, in the world that we live in. Before I let you guys go, I, I remember when I talked to Kevin about Revelation, he said that we didn't really have to ask anybody to be a part of this. They just wanted to be a part of it. And you've got such an amazing cast here. I mean, Yuri Lowenthal's great. Greg Griffin is particularly amazing. Did you already have an idea of who you might want for these roles? and Or did everything just kind of click during the audition process? So Yuri Lowenthal is somebody I, I want to... Um, my son and I were playing the spider-man playstation game that is so brilliant that came out of, like three years ago and yuri plays peter parker and spider-man and, and in addition to an amazing resume the length of your arm but hearing him and i'm a huge spider-man jeff and i but we're both huge spider-man and peter parker fans and that quality of being the, the everyman kid who's got something special inside and he has to earn it and 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 have a coming of age story is so tracks so much with peter parker so yuri was just like wouldn't it be great if it was just like that and like that's the guy who's got a got to play it. And to your point, he, and, and this goes for all of them and they're just amazing, but they all, and Jeff, you, I, I know you agree, we agree on this. It's just to the point where you were saying before, it's like you have an opportunity to play with the toys 
that you played with when you were young, and in this case, craft a, a, a toy for the next generation that they will truly feel is their own, as, as opposed to just us handing them our toy, letting them have, have it be theirs. Totally right. What I think is so cool is like, you know, us, we grew up on with, with Ram Man, you know, slams into things. And so we still believe in the essence of the, of the character. And now we have Ram Ma'am and she's got, you know, jets that come off her head, a huge thing she hits with jets on, jets on her legs. It's just really the idea of upping the ante and plussing everything that we can just to push story along, you know, in, a, in an effective way and to make great toys from it. She's going to be cool. Oh, I can't wait for the toys. Thanks for emptying my <laughs> wallet, by the way, guys. Appreciate that, too. So that'll <laughs> but start. Let's start with the series, shall we? He-Man and the Masters of the Universe premiering exclusively on Netflix on September the 16th. Jeff Matsuda, Rob David, thank you so much, guys, for taking the time today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks James. And that is so 100% true. This is a new reimagining for a new generation of characters that I loved as a kid and as somebody who has a seven-year-old son now at home and a two-year-old and a daughter as well. This is a show that I feel like I can share with them and say, here's some characters that dad loved, but here's why, why you might love this version of these characters. And if they want to go back and see the other versions of the characters that I love, that's fine too. But this is something that might spark their interest in. And as a dad, quite frankly, that's something that, that I want. I want my kids to be have their interest sparked by characters that I loved. And I think this is a good way to do it. And I, and I agree with what Jeff said. This is a fun show for adults as well. I thoroughly enjoyed these episodes of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. I think that you will as well. And that's about as much as I could say because I can't review it yet, but I'll do that next week. But make sure you're watching He-Man and the Masters of the Universe on September the 16th as a Thursday exclusively on Netflix. Again, thanks to Rob David and Jeff Matsuda for joining me to talk about Masters He-Man and the Masters of the Universe from Netflix. Up next, we'll stay in the Netflix realm and talk about Lucifer Season 6 with no spoilers. Up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Do you know how much you have in common with some of your favorite celebrities, leaders, newsmakers? I'm Evelyn, the host of Reppin, where you'll meet notable people you think you know. You'll find out who they really are and what they represent. Listen to Reppin wherever you get your podcasts. This is Joe Henderson, showrunner for Lucifer, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I guess now there will be plenty of rest for the wicked. That is right. Season six, the final season, and they mean it this time, of Lucifer is now streaming on Netflix. I, I've got this sullen tone in my voice, don't I? I don't want it to be over any more than you do. Trust me. But but the end is definitely here. We got to say goodbye to these amazing characters in this incredible show. And here's what I'm going to do. I could I could absolutely sit here and spoil every single second of this with you and just share in the joy of what was this final season. I'm not going to do that, and I'll tell you why. I just don't feel like that's... I don't want to spoil any more. Like, maybe you. it just started, first of all. It just started airing here on September 10th, and that's the same day this podcast comes out every Friday. I'm not going to be the guy that expects every single one of you that listens to the show that loves Lucifer, and I know we've got a lot of Lucifer fans that listen to the show. I'm not going to be that guy that says, you've got to binge all 10 episodes of this so we can talk about this with spoilers. I can do that with you on social media. You want to at me at down and nerdy 757 You want to talk about this on social media with spoilers? I'm more than comfortable with that. 
I'm not maybe you're only on episode four, episode six, episode eight, whatever. I'm not going to spoil this for you. So let's just talk about this and then I'll just give I'll just wax poetic about the show in general. But what I will say is this, and I put this on an article I wrote at DanNerdyPodcast.com. Yes, there's other stuff on our website as well. So I feel like there's a little bit of a duality going on here story-wise, and I'll explain that. And that is that on one hand, as much as you love these characters, and I'm not just talking about Lucifer and Chloe either. I'm talking about Amenadiel. I'm talking about Dan. I'm talking about Ella. Everybody. If you love these characters, there are plenty of moments in this season that are just quintessentially that character. The idea of what you love about all of these characters is 100% there in this final season. This isn't a final season that decides to take a hard, sharp turn and say, let's turn everything on its ear because we get to do something huge and memorable memorable for the final season, and this is how we're going to do it. It doesn't do that at all. That does not mean there aren't some shocking moments and some out-of-character things that do happen, because that happens as well. But at its core, this is a writing team that clearly, and, and the actors involved as well, clearly respects these fans, respects these characters, and no matter what kind of twist they put them through, keep them true to that, at the end of the day, I think that's especially true for Lucifer early on in season six. You get some classic Lucifer in the beginning of season six. As a matter of fact, there's a great callback in season six, episode one to the pilot that I loved. It was it wasn't long. It was quick. It was right at the beginning. Absolutely loved it. And that is an attention to detail from the fans that I that it was one of the reasons I'm going to love and miss this writer's room, but I know they'll move on to other things as well and, and do great things with new projects too. So I'm really looking forward to that. But again, I think that's very true of Lucifer. I think that that's very true of of Ella to early on in season six as well. I think that's true of Amenadiel. By the way, I love what Amenadiel's going to be doing now. I think that, that was really, really funny. Amenadiel's new job that he's got. That it's, that's going to be coming up in season six. I love that. And I just love, and I think if anybody's the most different and you could see the change in one character the most, and, the, and you see that in season six, as much as she would probably want to punch me in the face for saying it, it's Maze, right? Maze has changed, I think, the most of any character on this show from the onset of season one to now. And, and tell me if you disagree with that. I know that there's other characters that have also changed a great deal, but I think May's the most. I really, really do. And the other thing that I will say about this show, just to kind of encompass everything, is that one thing that this show did right is it understands that it's not just about Chloe and Lucifer. And yes, there was plenty of that in season six, as there should be, especially considering who we see show up in the series as one of the early, let's say, foils of the season. Not necessarily want to say villain. Let's say foils. So you can understand why there's plenty of Chloe and Lucifer, and that is a ship that drives the show, and a ship in you know a couple of different senses of the word there, that has driven this show for a while. But there's other ships to be sailed on this show, right? So this, this series, the writers and everybody involved understands that 
These fans aren't just here for just Chloe and Lucifer. They're also here for Linda and Amenadiel. They're also here for Maze and Eve to a certain extent. They're also here for all of these other characters. They're here for Dan and things like that. So you're here for more than just your two main characters. And what this show does in its final season is it gives everybody their proper moment in the sun to have a satisfying ending. And that is not something that a lot of shows get to do, by the way. This show almost didn't get to do it two or three times. So everybody gets, I think anyway, my opinion, gets a satisfying ending. Everybody gets their little slice of time to make you go, oh, I love that. I love that character X got a chance to have that moment and and we got to get a little closure. What's next? And then you get just... You get closure on top of closure, I think. And a lot of shows don't do that either. They give you closure in like a big bundle, right? I don't think that Lucifer is doing that in its final season. It, it, you know, obviously there, I feel like there's a big send-off. Anyway, again, you want to you disagree with me on that, fine. I think there's a nice send-off. But at the same time, you're also giving each character their moment to shine and say goodbye in a certain way, to an audience that has loved them for far more than just these six seasons because it's been more than six six years for this show, right? It seems like it's dragged on much longer than that because it's had to be saved a couple of times. But Lucifans care deeply about this cast, not the main character, although they would, I mean, just walk in front of a bus for Tom Ellis. I know, I know you would because I'd be standing right there next to you. And for, and, you know, and for just so many other, Lauren German, there's so many other characters on the show. That's my point, that you would just, you know, you, that, that you just live for. And I get it, because I'm right there with you. And I don't know that I ever want to see anyone else play Lucifer Morningstar again. I don't think it'll ever happen, because how could it? How do you top what Tom Ellis has done in this role? How do you top what these writers did? With the show, the musical numbers that we saw and and you see those in season six, we had an animated episode, which was fantastic in this season as well. I love that they throw that through that curveball in there for you. But if I will give you one piece of advice when you're watching this and I'm not going to spoil it and I am going to steal this, though, from Lizzie from Fangirlish. And if you know if you're a Lucifan, you know who she is because she writes some amazing things about the show and has for so many seasons and had so many great interviews with members of the cast of the show as well. If you get to episode six, you better buckle in because you're not, you're not going to want to stop after episode six. So I absolutely agree with Lizzie on that. I I do not get to episode six and expect that you're just going to be able to put it down and walk away. You're not, it's not happening with all due respect. You're not walking away after episode six. So just be ready for that. And I also want to, as I kind of wrap up this discussion here about season six of Lucifer from Netflix, I've been very fortunate with the cast and, and members of the team of this show over the years. I've gotten to meet almost all of them. I've gotten to interview so many great members of this cast, you know, just go down our feed to catch those interviews. And I know you have, cause I see you listening to them, even the older interviews from season one, and it's such a genuinely amazing cast that I'm going to miss so much. 
and and they've always been so gracious and just the how much they cared about these characters. Again, there's a lot of great actors who care about their characters and you see that just the depth of care for these characters that each member of this cast has given to me is just nothing short of absolutely amazing. And that, and that goes for, you know, so many different members, especially of this main cast. And then I want to talk about Joe Henderson, Ildi Modrovich. I've just so enjoyed talking to Joe over the years about this show and how much they, and this, I think that I, it's safe to say that this cast and the creative team behind the show were just, have just been so moved over the years from the fans that they were already pouring their heart and soul into the series. And it just made everyone want to go that extra mile. And it shows, right? I think that, and, and again, I'm not going to put words in anybody's mouth here, but Without the fans, this show doesn't get this season, does not get this send-off, does not get this proper goodbye. And I think that if you talk to Joe and Ildi, they'd probably agree with that sentiment. Without you, this does not happen. So this was just such a wonderful send-off to the show. And I will, again, I'll miss this group terribly. I hope they get to work together in some capacity again someday even though it might might be a little... It's just going to be weird to see them doing anything else. And quite frankly, if I'm being honest, it's going to be weird to see them doing anything else after this. That's the kind of impact that this show has had. And if you have somebody in your life that has never watched this show, I don't know how it's possible, but if you have somebody in your life that's never watched this show, have them binge it from the beginning. Why? So you can enjoy their reactions to what you already know is coming. And you get to watch Lucifer again from start to finish. And how terrible would that be? Not terrible at all. So that's it. It's all over for season six of Lucifer on Netflix. It's been a hell of a ride. I've enjoyed every single episode of it. I'm so glad that I fell in love with this show from the beginning. And yes, it is sad to say goodbye, but six seasons, that's a damn good run. And I was so, so happy that I got to watch to watch each and every episode of it. That's going to do it for my spoiler-free review of Season 6 of Lucifer. Up next, how about we talk about the comics? It's what we're reading on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hello, this is Tom Ellis from Lucifer, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Whether superheroes are your thing or not, there's something for everybody in the comics world and whatever you're reading on. It's time for what we're reading, and I want to start with DC, actually. One of my favorite villains of all time, Black Manta, a new limited series from DC Comics. Black Manta, number one, from Chuck Brown. Valentin Delandro on the art. Marissa Luis on the colors. And Clinton Cowles on the letters. I don't know what drew me to Black Manta years ago when, when I was a kid. I actually think it was Super Friends. And I still think that Black Manta has one of the best villain costume designs ever in comics. Don't at me. It's a cool look, whether you like it or not. Now... As far as this book goes, I had to jump at a chance to review this. Actually, it introduces us to a new hero, Torrid. We also get a new villain in Devil Ray. And Manta's actually searching for a rare metal. And maybe a few minor spoilers in here. Nothing major, though. I'm not going to spoil the book for you. Here's the question, though. Is he really building a weapon or not? That's, that's the thing that I'm trying to figure out as I'm going through this story. But here's the problem with that. And I'm not going to dive too much into the story because that's pretty much the gist. 
The problem with the book is it's a bit all over the place. There are a few different moving pieces to this story, but they don't seem to flow very well together as or as well as you would like them to because it feels like there's two different points that we're talking about here. The new characters are good. We just don't get very much of them, at least not in my opinion. Anyway, I'm not saying you've got to plaster your entire story, especially if it's a Black Manta story with these new characters. But if you're going to do that, you got to give me a little bit more something in the first issue to establish them because you got to get me to stick around for the second one. You can't just save everything for the next issue as far as new characters are concerned. It's at least not my opinion anyway. But is the art the saving grace? I mean, the art's okay at times. But it really lacks certain depth of de- and detail in some big moments. And there's there's a couple of pages that I kind of feel like just kind of were pushed to the side, gone by the wayside type of pages. And, and, and I hate to say that, but I was really, maybe my expectations were really high for this because I'm a really big fan of the character. It just kind of fell flat for me. And while I do think you, you capture the essence of Black Manta at, at his core for who he is now is almost, I don't want to say anti-hero because I hate that term, but they're heroing him up a little bit more. And that's just kind of the direction the DC's taken him recently. But I don't know if this story was really enough for me to come back. I, since I love the character, I'll probably come back for another issue. But I just don't think you're going to be wowed by Black Manta number one from DC Comics. If you if you think I'm wrong, go ahead and let me know. I wanted to go back to last week, though, really quick. Well, actually, this week, a few days ago as well. Same day that this book was released, because I wanted to talk about May's book number one from Dark Horse Comics. One of the reasons being is that Jeff Lemire, and he'll do this sometimes, he's writing and doing the art for this thing, because, you know, because he can. And Steve Wands is doing the letter scene. Now, the story follows a man named Will, who lost his daughter, Wendy, and is just going through the motions of life in the most depressing way possible. And I'm not, again, not really going to spoil a ton of this, maybe a couple minor spoilers in here. Nothing's going to ruin the book for you. On the surface, though, you could think that this story has a ton of pages, but not a lot of content. There's a lot of art in this thing. There's not a ton of dialogue. There's some internal monologue going on there and narration as well. To me, though, each page drives home this pit of despair that Will is in, both in what is printed on, on and as far as the letters are concerned and from the art. You just got to really look at these pages, and if you do, it really just sucks you into this world with him. You kind of start to feel it a little bit, and you start to notice threads, both literal and figurative, in this story. Now, as that happens, more things start happening around Will, and even hope kind of starts to creep in a little bit. Then you here's the biggest spoiler of the entire book, okay? You see Wendy, okay? And this is clearly where the real story begins. So what you're getting is you're really establishing Will's character in this book. And of course he's, you know, essentially your main character, you want to do that. But I mean, I mean really establishing him, right? And then you kind of give you that little nugget at the end there and th- and if you get what was going on in those early pages and there were a lot of them then that moment's going to hit you hard and it hit me hard the choice of colors though to me and when they're brought in because there's not a ton of color in this book really makes a huge difference 
in this story. So if you want to say coloring doesn't matter as much as you think it does, read May's book, number one, and you'll change your mind. Because then there's how it's written. Whatever it wants to convey, it's so brilliantly there, page by page. That's the brilliance of this book, is that the way that the colors bring you in to the emotion, and then you tie that in with what's written word-wise, when it's everything's done so meticulously and so and at the right moments that's one of the things i really really enjoyed about this book if we're headed to the center there though like if again if you read the book you'll get that there'll be a huge bullseye when you get there i think anyway i can't wait to see where the rest of this is of this is going to go and maybe i read too much into it maybe i didn't but Jeff Lemire, another winner for him as far as I'm concerned. Steve Wands, throw him in there with the letters too. May's book number one, something I think will really, really interest you from Dark Horse Comics. That's going to do it for what we're reading. Up next, we'll talk about a bunch of trailers, and I'll get on my soapbox a little bit about Venom Let There Be Carnage. I'm James Witham, and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is David Sobolov, voice of Grodd on The Flash and Drax on Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy. And you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Are you taking the blue pill or the red pill? It's time for nerd news. And it's time to, once again, enter the Matrix. Let's talk about some of the biggest trailers of the week. The Matrix Resurrection is one of them. Resurrections, I should say. Going to be out December the 22nd in theaters and on HBO Max. Same day. And yes, I thought the exact same thing that you did when you saw this trailer thinking, Man, they just kind of put John Wick right there in the Matrix, didn't they? All you needed is a dog and some heavy firepower. And, oh, wait, there's the heavy firepower. But, you know, Neo's always been more for hand-to-hand combat, right? But we're not talking about Neo in this trailer, are we? We're talking about Mr. Anderson, as they used to say. And, you know, Smoil Smith's not back, and and that's a little bit of a bummer. But you, you also understand it at the same time. And one thing I did see, as, as a matter of fact... I think that this trailer got a lot of really good reception on social media, which doesn't happen a ton, especially with movies that have been that are being done again after decades. But one thing I did see was, you know, how are they supposed to make a Matrix movie in 2021? And while this trailer doesn't really dig into a ton of details about what this movie is going to be about, you kind of see people on cell phones and stuff like that, and, and then the technology of our day today. It is going to be very much a part of this movie, it looks like. Now, how they choose to work that in, though, I think is going to be really, really interesting. Are they going to tie cell phones to the Matrix somehow? Or is that, you know, like going to be a tracking type thing? I, I'm not sure exactly. But one thing I do know is that I was excited when you had that first moment between Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss, you know, Neo and Trinity together and then she's like do I know you and I said hold on a second what is going on here now I understand what you're saying you're saying okay so the whole they don't know each other trope we're gonna go that route right then you have to remember what we're talking about here we're talking about the matrix so which version of the matrix is it obviously it seems like Neo was put somewhere along with Trinity or maybe that what we see at the beginning maybe that's not really Trinity or not his Trinity Anyway, keep that in mind, okay? And that's one of the things... I'm going to get off on a tangent here again. One of the things I love about these Matrix movies over the years is that it creates discussion. It creates those kind of moments where you say, well, is it this or is it this? Is it that or is it that? You know, could we be talking about this or that? That's one of the things I've always loved about 
these movies. And it almost always seems like there was never a right or wrong answer to any of this. It was just this circular discussion of anybody could be right sort of thing. And that was the beauty part or wrong too, quite frankly. That was the beauty part of the Matrix for me, or at least one of them anyway, after that first mind-blowing movie. But as I go back to my point about this trailer, as you keep watching, it's pretty clear that they sort of figure it out, right? Or at least they decide to work together at some point. Then you see Yahya Abdul-Mateen the second, And you say, okay, is that Morpheus or is it not? And it turns out that it is a young Morpheus. He confirms that on social media. So that is going to be really interesting. So the mentor, he now is a younger Morpheus. How does Morpheus get there? Obviously, again, it's the Matrix. I, I don't put anybody past anything at this point. There's obviously some sort of a travel time travel situation going on here or astral projection, whatever you want to call it. The Matrix uh, the rules are different there, quite frankly. And clearly Neo starts to remember what he's capable of as you progress through this trailer. And then the action is just freaking wild after that. And I do actually kind of love that the trailer doesn't give you a ton of clues as to what's going on in this movie. And I'm sure that we'll get more clues as the trailers progress. But at the same time, I'm just loving this Matrix Resurrection again out December 22nd from Warner Brothers Pictures. I want to fast forward, speaking of Warner Brothers, to the Injustice movie adaptation. It's going to be happening from Warner Brothers Home Entertainment and DC and Warner Brothers Animation. That'll be out on October the 19th, so we're not too far away from that. Yes, it's based on the very popular video game franchise, and I've got to say, honestly, this one I've been waiting for for a long time. I was actually kind of hoping that we would get a live-action version of this as well. I'm obviously not going to be greedy. I will absolutely take an animated version of this because I think that maybe that's going to be the better way to do it. Now, I know what you're saying. You're saying, okay, the story mode in the game is so good. What's going to be the point of doing an animated adaptation? Well, if you know anything about these Warner Brothers home entertainment animated DC movies, you know, things do get changed up a little bit, but the core of it's still there. You know, the tragedy that sends super for thanks to the Joker, by the way, that sends Superman down that spiral. And, you know, he ends up doing the unthinkable, right? And that's where the story kind of goes. And then it's Batman versus Superman for real, right? I'm not saying that the movie wasn't real, but, and, and, the, and the, you know, Frank Miller to his credit, I don't think you can ever match that, but this is a Batman versus Superman story that takes it to the nth degree. Or at least Tom, that's where Tom Taylor took it when he wrote the comics for DC as well anyway. But I got to say that there's a moment in this trailer. Obviously, we're talking about Lois Lane here too, by the way, that gets the, the, the Joker takes Lois Lane. And if you know anything about this story, you know what happens after that. And that's my point. Is and there's a moment in this trailer where you see Batman and Joker in that interrogation room, and Superman busts through that wall, okay, eyes glowing. You know what moment is coming. If you've if you played this, if you read this, you know that what moment is coming, and then that's where the trailer goes. That's the end of the trailer right there. So obviously we're gonna get that. Well, I shouldn't say obviously. They could change it a little bit, but in some capacity you're gonna get that moment that you know. That is just the catalyst 
for everything in this, right? Also, you have to keep in mind there's a whole who lives and who dies aspect to this thing, too, because they could certainly change who lives and who dies in telling the story. But I also think it's in the performances of these characters, too. Obviously, you got some brilliant performances in the game, but you got Justin Hartley playing Superman this time around. Anson Mount is going to be playing Batman. And I think Anson Mount is going to be a great voice of Batman in this thing. You've also got Kevin Pollock, who's going to be the Joker and Jonathan Kent. I think that's going to be super, super interesting right there. And then, I mean, the, the list just goes on and on of characters. You get Killer Croc's going to be in this, Mr. Terrific, Catwoman, Green Arrow, obviously. You're going to have Wonder Woman. You saw, you saw her in the trailer. And I'm not going to sit here and list every single character that's going to be a part of this thing. If I'm, if I'm Derek Phillips, I'm nervous as Nightwing. And yeah, Yuri Lowenthal is actually going to be in this too. And he's going to play a few different characters, Mirror Master, Flash, and Shazam, just because that's Yuri Lowenthal and that's how he rolls. So again, an amazing cast for this. I think that if you're, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably familiar with the story of Injustice. But even if you're not, this is one of the better kind of alternate timeline storylines ever, as far as I'm concerned. I know that's heavy-handed. I don't care. I think that this has been that intense. And it's a story that continued on very, very well in the comics, even after the game, that first game was done. And then, of course, we got a second game out of it as well. So this could be, if this is a successful adaptation, this is something we could see a little bit more of down the line. Hey, I'd be all for that. Injustice hits 4K Ultra Blu-ray combo pack, also on Blu-ray and digital HD on October the 19th from Warner Brothers Home Entertainment. I also want to touch on the Wheel of Time adaptation coming to Amazon based on the, of course, best-selling book series. That'll be out on November the 19th. Now, if you're not familiar with Wheel of Time, it actually is kind of a journey of five men and young men and women who are kind of, one of them's deemed as the Dragon Reborn, or at least that's the prophecy anyway. And that this Dragon Reborn is either going to save or destroy all of humanity, and we don't know which. And of course, this all follows Moraine, who's played by Rosamund Pike, and she's a member of this organization called the A.S. Sedai. I hope I'm saying that right. And that's kind of, the, and not everybody has magic in this fantasy world either. Some women do, some women don't. Some men do, some men don't, as far as I can remember. Anyway, it's been a while since I've, I've even picked up one of these books, so they have to excuse me on that a little bit. But it's one of those things where you see it and you go, if you love fantasy stories like this, if you love, like when you see this, I think of like a shadow and bone to a certain degree, there's you could go down the list of a lot, but Shadow and Bone was one that kind of caught my the back of my mind's eye when I first saw this. Maybe because of the younger cast and the fact that you've also got this dark figure who is your villain in this as well. But I mean that goes for a lot of different fantasy adaptations too. But this is this is kind of a popular genre right now, and Amazon has capitalized on this before. I think that they, they did a great job, and albeit in a different way, with Carnival Row. And I think that's going to be a totally different tone than the Wheel of Time, obviously. But to me, this is one of those, let's strike while the iron's hot kind of things, right? This is a hot genre right now. This is right in my wheelhouse. Even if, the, if it wasn't a hot genre, I'd be watching this thing 
regardless. I think that the sets are gorgeous so far from what we've seen in the trailer. I think it seems like it's going to be very, very well cast. Again, we don't get a, you don't get a ton of hints as to what's going on here. The magical elements look good just from the first trailer alone. So I'm happy with what I've seen so far from the Wheel of Time. Looking forward to finding out more as we get closer. I think I need to read the book again for sure before this thing hits on November the 19th. I think that'll definitely help me out. I did want to jump up on my soapbox a little bit about something, and that is the ever-seesawing release dates for Venom, Let There Be Carnage. Let me be very clear about this. You know if you've listened to the show before how much these moving release dates have annoyed me in this pandemic era. I know that for the most part, they've been necessary. Okay, and, and, I, and I haven't been to a movie theater in almost two years. I'll put that out there right now. Have not been to a movie theater. So I get wanting to be safe and just not wanting to get to the theater. Maybe that those aren't necessarily my reasons, but I get, a, I get why there's that feeling for certain people that just aren't comfortable going to a movie theater right now. And I, I get it. I really, really do. I haven't been, so I'm certainly not going to criticize you for that. I also get that there's people that want to see movies in the theater, especially certain movies if you feel like it's got to be seen in the theater. Okay, so Venom Venom 2, Let There Be Carnage, not as, has not been pushed back this time. It's been pushed back up now to October the 1st. Why? I think it's pretty obvious why. You saw the record-breaking, well, Labor Day record-breaking box office from Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Congratulations to Marvel and everybody involved in that cast and production too, by the way. And my review of that will be coming later on down the line when I can watch it at the comfort of my own home or get to a movie theater at some point. But yes, I will review the movie at some point down the line because it does look amazing. I can't wait to see it. Not my point though. Clearly, this is in response to the box office number that Shang-Chi did. And to that I say... Boy, that is a huge risk. And here's the, here's the reason why. The hype and the confidence level going into Shang-Chi was huge. I don't care what you say. This movie was built up so well. The trailers that they put out were spot on in highlighting exactly the right things that would draw crowds to this movie. One of those being the Marvel Studios logo. Okay. I want to make that very clear. There's a very clear difference between Marvel Studios and Sony's Marvel. I know they're playing nice together right now. That's not the point. My point is, is that Shang-Chi not only brought that Marvel logo, it also brought what looked to be a top-notch martial arts film with also mystical elements to it. Don't at me about the Ten Rings. I know what they are. I know what they do. I'm talking about presentation to the general movie going public because that's who you need to reel in. And I've said that a thousand times on this show. If you're a diehard Marvel fan, whether it be Marvel Comics, just Marvel Studios for movies, whatever, you're going to see this even if the trailer looks like trash. You proved that by going to the X-Men movies and you know you did just so you could complain about it. So whether it was look good to you or not, you were going to go. This movie needed to real, and all of them, quite frankly, 
need to reel in, reel in the general movie going public, and that is the, at the crux of the success of Marvel Studios, is that they found a way to get nerds like myself, and I say that in an endearing term, you know that, but also the general movie going public who just think, this looks cool, I'm going to check this out, and then they just reeled them in from there with movie after movie, and here we are in phase four. You have to earn that respect from the general movie going public. Can Venom say the same thing? Was Venom a successful first movie? Yes. Not hugely successful, but it was successful. Absolutely earned itself a sequel. However, moviegoers have shown during this pandemic, they'll show up for things that they really want to see regardless of availability and they'll work with their whatever safety protocols that that they need to. And quite frankly, not everybody wants to put up with the safety protocols. And 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 from that you say, okay, if you don't like it, don't go. And people aren't going for that reason. There's people that aren't going because they don't want to sit in a the theater with a mask on and they, they want to be able to enjoy their popcorn and things like that without having to worry about getting sick. There's also people that just are, are just worried about being in a movie theater and getting sick that are also not going. There's also a movies are expensive aspect to this too. And they are the theatrical experience, which is, a, which is a term that we gets brought up a lot lately. The theatrical experience is an expensive one, whether you like it or not. So do you want to put factor all of these things in? Are you going to be more choosy about what movies get you in that car, either by yourself or with your family, to go to the theater to go see? Look at the movies that have been big, hugely successful, pandemic-wise, lately. You've got Fast 9, was was very successful. You've also got Shang-Chi extremely successful. I'll throw free guy in there. I think free guy was, was pretty successful as well. You could put suicide squad in there to a certain degree, but there aren't a ton of movies that have been hugely successful in this era of the pandemic. So I think that by moving this movie up, you'd send a clear message that you think now's the time to strike. Now's the time you're going to get people their butts in their seats to see your movie. And you feel like if you wait, things could get worse. And that is true. If you wait, things could get worse. I don't disagree with that. Here's where I do disagree. Venom, Let There Be Carnage is not Shang-Chi. I know you've got Carnage. I know it looks cool. Carnage looks very good. I think Woody Harrelson's going to be great as Cletus Cassidy. I really do. I've, 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 I'm on record as liking Tom Hardy as Venom. I'm excited to see what Andy Serkis can bring in that director's chair. But if I'm Sony Pictures, to move this thing up by two weeks after just moving it back to October 15th, to move it back up again, to me, I, I think that this is possibly more of a headache than it's actually worth. And now, if you move this movie up, and it doesn't do well, what are you going to say? Ah, should have waited. Should have waited. And, and, and the finger pointing will start to go around about what the real problem was. And the problem was is that you had 
confidence in a movie that you shouldn't have had as much confidence in. And I could be dead wrong about this, and I will be right back here to tell you if I am. But unless this movie can do Shang-Chi numbers, and I don't think it'll even touch that, then it wasn't worth it. If it's, if it's as successful as, like, say, Free Guy, I still don't think it's worth it. This is a movie that if you decided to wait, and, and if you wanted to... I'm, I, and the other thing is we're arguing over two weeks. That's the other thing I don't get. What was the what was the absolute need need to move this up by two weeks? Doesn't make any sense to me. You could have kept it on October the 15th. I can't imagine that between October the 1st and October the 15th, and I maybe I shouldn't even say it because I don't want to jinx it. But you're worried about things getting worse, right? And now you're arguing over two weeks. And I can't imagine your theatrical partners who've been marketing this thing are too thrilled about that either. Maybe you're just happy that you're getting these movies in the theater and not on demand also. Maybe you're just happy you're not getting these as a dual release, and maybe that's enough for you. But I got to tell you, to me, this is a huge risk. And cross your fingers, I I don't want it to fail. I want this to work out. But boy, do I have a bad feeling about this. And hey, if you decide to go see it, let me know if you do. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to my guests this week, Rob David and Jeff Matsuda, to talk about He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, which is going to be on Netflix on September the 16th. Also, remember, find us on social media at Down and Nerdy 757 on Twitter and on Instagram and at Down and Nerdy on Facebook and online as well at downandnerdypodcast.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds. Hey, it's Mae Whitman, and I play Frankie in the new Realm podcast, The Sisters. The Sisters is about a museum curator of medical oddities who investigates the origins of a mutated skeleton with two layers of bones. Seven ribs are completely fused, and you have... No idea where this came from? No. She was sent here anonymously. Mm-mm. Not she. They, maybe? W- wait. I've never seen anything like this. Soon, she uncovers an extraordinary mystery that connects her present with one family's tragic past in hauntingly dangerous ways. My grandfather was a journalist back in the 60s and 70s. He specialized in strange stories. Who are they? How are they connected to the skeleton? Play the tape. You'll see. Listen to The Sisters wherever you get your podcasts. We dream about it. We both dream about it. How often? <laughs>